It's September 4th, 2021. You're listening to The Word with me, Christopher Von Roy. Thank you for listening to this podcast and, yeah, giving me your valuable time. Whether you're driving or sitting having breakfast, I hope what I offer you with these podcasts will make you think and, yeah, provide a sort of foundation for you to engage with more zest, gusto, and geist topics or discussion points that you didn't usually wouldn't have thought about. Um, yeah, any suggestions, please email me. Um, and any feedback, I would love for you to, yeah, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like about the podcast. Um, you can comment below on the Substack generated page. Um, this week's podcast is brought to you by Substack and Coinbase. I haven't invested in cryptocurrency, but, um, I've heard it's all the rage. So check them out. Today's topic is a biggie. Um, and it's something that's dear to my heart and something I've always wanted to talk about. So without further ado, here it is. The word. Okay, so today's topic, tentatively, I decided to call Out of My Mind, um, and it's based on my experience of what happened to my mental health during COVID, which I think is quite relevant for a lot of people out there to hear. So seeing this is my first podcast, I'm going to be doing it on my own. Um, that's not going to be the norm. I've got a selected number of guests, just in our darn among them, that are I'm going to be booking in the next couple of months. So it's not just going to be me rambling for two hours. Okay, so out of my mind, um, a year and a bit of mental health in the times of COVID. So I guess I should give my, a bit of a background to myself. Um uh, so I was born in Sweden in 1975 in Stockholm, and when I was very young, about five months, we moved to New Jersey, and I grew up there until I was about five years old. Um, moved to Germany, to Berlin, and then Munich till I was 18 and graduated, and I studied in the UK, studied biology, and then I did a Master's of Science in Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Worked in biotech and uh, pharmaceutical industry. I also worked in the military and eventually became a medical writer. And now I'm a full-time writer, medical science, politics, and otherwise. Doing contract work for various clients. And, okay, so what's my experience with mental health? So... When I was younger, I was 
not diagnosed with anything. I never really had major depressive episodes. Now looking back, I can remember having had anxiety attacks. Just the shortness of breath and almost passing out from not breathing and feeling like, what would you call it, really small. Um, a funny anecdote about panic attacks is that I used to think the French expression le petit mort referred to panic attacks ever, ever since I, w I was about 16 and my French teacher made a remark about it and I never thought about looking it up and yeah, it turns out the petit mort, the little death in French refers to orgasm and not anxiety attacks, the polar opposite. But yeah, looking back now with my knowledge of anxiety, um, I probably had undiagnosed anxiety disorder when I was a child, but I was a happy kid, didn't, um, I did, I did very well at school, I, I studied a lot, um, and just generally didn't try to get into any trouble, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't really do drugs. And that all changed when I got older. Um, yeah, so about in my 30s, I had a major clinical depression episode with suicidal ideation. And I convinced myself that I had bipolar disorder, even though there were no other discerning um, symptoms. Like, I didn't really have manic behavior. I had you know, creative thought. And um, the way I boil it down is I watched a documentary film about Stephen Fry talking about bipolar disorder, and I identified with so much of that, but had never had a manic outburst ever. And um, in order to be diagnosed as bipolar, you actually have to have one certified manic episode. But this didn't deter me to um, scope out a private psychiatrist in Auckland at the time. So I, yeah, I live in New Zealand now and I found a psychiatrist. I'd been to three psychiatrists, which all, all of them had said, you've got clinical depression and we need to put you on antidepressants. And there was something about going on antidepressants that I was, um, apprehensive about and a little bit scared. And to be a hundred percent honest, and no one ever talks about this, but reading the pack back package and reading that it said most of these antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors cause, um, erectile dysfunction. I was like, no way am I going to sacrifice that for this, what I thought was a temporary, feeling of malaise um even though it was yeah anyone who suffered from clinical depression um knows that it's not just malaise it's terrible you've got no energy to get up in the morning and you've got zero ability to put on clothes or even function remotely to your best so yeah it's it's important especially people going through it now that are listening to this yeah i'm with you guys and i fully understand and yeah i'm not making light of the issue um so to get back to it this private psychiatrist um said i should go on mood stabilizers so i took this substance called um sodium valproate which is epilim, which they give to epileptic patients because it uh affects the gaba receptor and yeah generally calms the nervous system down 
Um, it worked. It kind of got me out of the depression, but it also really, um, it made me feel very, very tired and zombie-like, like not in tune with my feelings. And I'm an incredibly sensitive person and I, yeah, um, pick up on social cues very easily. And so it was a very strange time for me to be going through this with this medication coursing through my veins, making me, yeah, I felt like a walking zombie. There's no other way to explain it. It helped me sleep, which was great, which is the one thing that, yeah, when you go through depression and insomnia is the biggest nightmare. So not being able to sleep really, you know, is something that can put you into that state. And these medications were helping me sleep, so I didn't think much about it. Um, I took them for about six months and then decided, yeah, I should be, you know, getting on with my life. This coincided with me moving house, and I then decided from one day to the next, I'm just going to stop taking the medication. And, yeah. So I need to also, I'll do a disclaimer quickly now for all you listening going, oh, God, where is this ending up? This is depressing. Um, At the end of this podcast, when I get through my mental health sermon, I am going to read an excerpt from an amazing book called Owls of the Eastern Ice, which was written by a dear friend of mine, Jonathan Slatt. It's the quest to find and save the world's largest owl. It's a sort of biographical account of my friend's PhD thesis and how he battled the extremes in the outback of Primorje, a very... um deserted and isolated area of Russia. Um, yeah, so that's coming at the end of this podcast. And yeah, I wanted to add as well, leading up to me being diagnosed as a bipolar disorder patient, that I was a heavy drinker, heavy smoker, cigarette smoker, like daily chain smoking habit. And I smoked a lot of cannabis. So, yeah, that just on the outset. So when I decided to go off the medication without consulting my psychiatrist, I started drinking again and smoking marijuana and, yeah, had moved house and was feeling happy. And it worked for a couple of years. And then I encountered my next massive depressive phase where, yeah, suicidal ideation. To this point, I hadn't acted on any of this. It had just been something that had been playing in my head. And, yeah, so roll the clock forward. I'm now living in a place called Golden Bay in New Zealand. Beautiful area of the country, um, just bordering on the largest national park called the Kahurangi National Park is a little township called Golden Bay. Well, it's actually a couple of townships and it's nestled among this beautiful bay that is, that borders, borders the third largest, uh, sand spit, natural forming sand spit in the world called Farewell Spit. Absolutely incredible place of the country and the north western part of the South Island. The nearest city is two hours away and it's, yeah, the town, the area is 
basically cut off from the rest of the world via this mount, massive mountain range called the Taka Hill, where there's one single road that goes across it, and if that ever gets cut off, we're literally cut off from society. So it's quite a neat little place to live. Um, it's also known as the one area of New Zealand that supplies the rest of the country with cannabis, so cannabis is ubiquitously available. Um, yeah, so leading up into um, lockdown last year when COVID appeared, I had had a history of mental health, but I felt like I was dealing with it well because I was what the professionals call self-medicating, smoking weed every day and drinking. And when lockdown was announced, I did two visits. I went to the local sort of stationery store and bought up as much art equipment as I could. And I visited the local liquor store and bought as much liquor as I could. And now I normally never drank spirits, but I bought, you know, vodka and whiskey and as much white wine that I could carry, red wine, white wine, whatever, beers, and got uh, an ounce of high-grade marijuana and locked down on my own in a, you know, quite a nice place, but... Yeah, I had my neighbor to confer with every day, but generally I just kept to myself, smoked a lot of marijuana, drank a lot, and painted and was happy, you know, chain smoked and thought everything was great. I had trouble sleeping a little bit, but hey, it was nice. I'm an introvert. I don't really like hanging out with people, so for me it was a heaven sent. Um... Yeah, so I was drinking and smoking weed every single day. I was drinking in the morning and I was eating well. I mean, I've always eaten well. I like cooking and so I was cooking for myself. But slowly but surely I was losing touch with the reality a little bit. And um, yeah, it was unsustainable both physiologically and emotionally. But yeah, so this lockdown lasted seven weeks Came out of it, felt okay, and for a couple of months, I was all right. And then, yeah, and this is when, this is pretty tough. So I started to get suicidal ideation again, but without the depression. So I felt okay, but I just felt no... I didn't want to keep on living. I didn't see the purpose. I thought that... Um, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, now looking back, it probably was clinical depression, but I had energy, right? So, and this is when I then acted upon, um, my suicidal ideation. I tried to drown myself in the river. Um, bizarrely enough, the minute I jumped into this freezing cold river, I was shocked back to life and I, it was a pretty, um, pretty tumultuous river it's very strong current lots of boulders looking back again i was super lucky i didn't get stuck i'm a good swimmer so i managed to swim my way out and dripping wet i walked through the township back to my house going oh i'm such a loser i couldn't even drown myself um and then i tried to get a knife and stab myself in my neck 
and the knife slipped in my hand, so I only jabbed my neck a little bit, and I immediately woke out of it and thought, what the hell are you doing? But I was still... Yeah, by this time I had dropped into this sort of what people call a psychosis, and I was imagining things, and I thought the whole township I was in knew about what was going on and that they were all trying to get me, that there were secret police stationed everywhere around my house. Um, yeah, so this is, it's going to get pretty graphic, but I'm going to try and minimize it. So it's going to be, it's going to be palatable for you guys. So don't worry about it. Um, I wasn't sleeping at all. And one morning I woke up and I thought that some demon was trying to get to me. It's bizarre when you're in this psychotic state. What I can remember is all of the stories and the science fiction novels I'd read and the Bible and all these stuffs were interplaying in my mind. And I'd created this narrative that I had to get to certain places within this area that I lived in order to get out of hell, right? So Dante's Inferno was playing in my mind the seven stages of hell and I was at the seventh and I needed to get to the first to have a better life. <laughs> Not to necessarily get out of hell, but to get out of the worst hell. Um, I also thought the entire area I lived was cut off from the rest of the world and that any contact with the out of outside the world was me contacting other dimensions, right? Okay. So one morning I woke up and I jumped the fence of my house and I just started running into a cow field and intermittently trying to drown myself in all of the drinking containers for the cows. Luckily, my neighbor saw me out of his back window and started following me. And I was running and pulling my hair and screaming up at this helicopter I thought was flying above me and filming me. And I got caught in multiple electric fences. And all the while, my 64-year-old neighbor is trying to keep up with me. And I'm running at top speed across this, um, yeah, these dairy fields. Now, looking back at it, I was trying to get to this one place that was up a mountain so I could jump off it. I can remember that clearly. Um, and I also remember my neighbor eventually catching up to me when I was in an electric fence and just telling me to stop. I remember that. And I remember seeing the police. And then eventually I just gave up and sat down and another friend came, luckily, and picked me up and took me to the hospital and yeah so I thought I was still okay I wasn't trusting anyone at the hospital I thought it was all staged I thought it was a like a like a Hollywood studio and the doctor wasn't a real doctor and none of the equipment worked and yeah so I still knew what medication was and I was asking to be put on medication when I was in there and um refusing to take the medication that they were giving me and eventually I came round and the people from the mental health services said I think we need to take you to the public hospital which was in the city two hours away right um 
driving over this big mountain range to get there to be put into the mental health facility of this public hospital um, called Nelson Public Hospital. Anyway, so I decided, yep, that's the best thing. I packed whatever I could from my house, um, forgetting to pack underwear, socks, and really anything that I needed because obviously I was in a psychotic mind frame. I still thought everyone was out to get me and that the people that were driving me over the hill were secret police and that they were going to either arrest me or throw me off a cliff. Oh, this was my mindset. I can still recall that. Um, but yeah, and I, for me, getting to that hospital was a safe haven. So I was like, if I get there, I'm going to be safe. The whole time I was thinking that a helicopter was following our car, filming us, and that I was on national television, that everyone I knew was seeing me. Um, and yeah, so when we eventually got to this public mental health facility of a Nelson hospital, I um, was rushed into this room. There were three psychiatrists, about four nurses, healthcare workers, and the people that had driven me over the hill. So there was about 10 people in this room. It was about seven o'clock at night. It was dark outside. I was cold. Um, and they were asking me all these questions. And I just remember turning into my scientific self and starting to rattle off all these lists that I believe that I had been erroneously diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but I didn't think I had that. And I was telling them all what medications I wanted. I was like, I want this for um, sleep, for my sleep depravity, for my insomnia. I want promethazine. I want for my anxiety, I want to have one milligram of lorazepam, and I want to, on a daily basis, take 10 milligrams of this medication called escitalopram. This was just, I was rattling this off in my mind. Um, and they were like, no, we need to keep you under observation. And what they do in these mental health facilities is they, they keep you off all medication for a couple of days. So that's what they did with me. They put me in, and I asked to be put into isolation. So they put me into isolation, and it was pretty scary because there were some other quite sketchy dudes in there with me, big guys that I didn't know anything. I thought they were undercover police. And yeah, in these mental health hospitals, it's not very nice. You've got the, it's basically like prison, but with other people who are mentally challenged or going through difficult periods of their life. Um, yeah, so the shower is about, up to your belly button, the, the shower comes out, turns off every three seconds, so you can't really even wash yourself. And I didn't have any socks or underwear to change into, so I was washing my underwear in the shower. It was terrible, because I'd also, through being in these electric fences, I'd, I'd number two'd myself, so you can imagine. I didn't smell the best either. Um, luckily, my sister sent me a change of underwear and socks, God bless her. And my brother, who was at this time living in Austria, was handling all of the, like, you know, administrative sides of me getting admitted. And um, he's a, you know, uh, clinical, he studied clinical psychology at university, so he knows about this stuff. And he's a very empath empathic man. And so I was very lucky to have him. And I would talk to him and I wasn't, he would call me from Austria and I was convinced that he was police and that they were using some voice algorithm to mimic his voice. 
And so I kept on switching and asking him all these questions about things that had happened to us when we were younger that only he could remember. Must have been so frustrating for him talking to me. Um, so yeah, I was, they put me on antipsychotic medication and that didn't help. Uh, anyone who's ever been on that will know it actually brings forward psychoses. So, which I don't know if that's part of the whole treatment regimen, but they want to see essentially how crazy you are. Um, I also distinctly remember one night getting up and there being all these guards in the, um, the ward and I was felt like I was strangling myself. So I started headbutting, not headbutting, but like ramming people like a goat into their stomach, not trying to hurt them, but just, I guess it was out of frustration. And a bunch of these guys just grabbed me and pulled me into this room and a nurse came in and I think she gave me some type of sleeping medication, like shot whilst being held down this is the other thing now i don't know how much of this is actually accurate because i was in a psychosis but that bit i do remember happening and i spoke to one of the um, nurses there and they said yeah it was that was the incident where we we knew that there was no violent bone in your body so after that they took me out of isolation and um, let me loose on the general floor with all the other patients um I was still taking these antipsychotic medication and I'd seen about four psychiatrists. All of them had retracted my bipolar di disorder diagnosis and had said, yeah, he's suffering from clinical depression and, but we're not sure how to medicate him. And meanwhile, I was just going into the art room and painting as much as I could and getting other patients to paint with me. And I was trying to avoid other patients as well because when you're in that state being around people that are a little bit edgy and out of their minds as I was um is can be a very daunting experience I mean even if you're completely sane and sober in those places it would also be quite scary um but yeah god bless the nurses that were in there and all the staff they really did their best and um so I can remember there's two things that got me out of there because I was in there for about, I think it was about 15 days or two weeks. It's not a short time, but one day, and I've written about this on one, in one of my, in one of my Substack newsletters, I met this Maori man who said, why don't you come with me? We're going to be doing a bit of a, um, exercise and discussion group. And I got there and all of the, nurses and staff and doctors and um clinical directors that were maori had all gathered in the mental health facility and they were holding um a, a group facilitation meeting it was the benefit for all the staff but also for those patients who wanted to attend and it was only me and i think one or two other patients that went there and we sang these beautiful waiata and um yeah, had a great discussion about what it means to be spiritual, wairua, that's called in Māori. And it was after that encounter that I then went and met with another psychiatrist, and he asked me 
um, you know, based on how my academic qualifications, they knew I wasn't an idiot. So he was like, you've got experience with us. What do you want to take? I remember you saying medications when you first got admitted. What is it? We want to help you. So I listed off the medication again and he said, okay, let's give it a go. And yeah, I'm lucky. I'm a very sensitive person. These types of medications work very quickly on me. And within four days or three days after I got dosed on escitalopram, it's called Lexapro in America, the over-the-counter name, the generic name. Um, yeah, escitalopram is a new formulation of what a, uh, a, a medication that they used to give depressed patients called citalopram so it's a new formulation that works incredibly effectively and ironically the reason i wanted to take it was because one of my favorite comedians that i had seen um in an interview spoke about his anxiety and his depression and um he said that he was on Lexapro, and this is Bill Hader, who used to be on Saturday Night Live. I don't know who knows him. He was in, he's been in a lot of Judd Apatow movies, and yeah. So that was the reason I wanted to take Acetalopram, and it worked for me. So I managed to go back home, um, yeah, I quit smoking, I quit drinking, and I quit coffee, and I quit marijuana, um, yeah, four major addictions that had been staples of my life for nearly two decades. So, um, yeah, I guess the reason why I'm recording this and I'm wanting people to listen is it's a scary thing to go through psychosis. I never in a million years would have thought that I, this would have happened to me. I'd heard about it and I was like, oh, no, this would never happen to me. And I'd never made the connection. I'd read about that cannabis can cause psychotic disorders and schizophrenia, but which my symptoms did mimic a little bit. But I knew that um, back then I was, you know, had enough knowledge of psychiatry that I knew that all of these indications, bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, they all mold into one mental health thing like these categories don't actually exist on their own they're all like you can be both you can be schizophrenic and depressed and schizophrenic and bipolar disorder the distinction isn't clear-cut so one thing i knew is that i didn't want to go on the schizophrenia medication because i had tried it before in the past as well and that's why my symptoms, I mimicked the symptoms of a depressed, clinically depressed patient so I could get on the medication that I wanted, right? Um, and this is what helped put me in the right mind frame to get off all of those addictions, I guess. I read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. That helped me quit smoking, which incidentally I need to um, make that point uh clear that I had stopped smoking about a, six weeks before the psychosis happened. So one of the psychiatrists actually believed that the nicotine withdrawal could have put me into a mind frame that made me susceptible to, and now all of you smokers that are going, oh, I'm not going to give up smoking, hold on. I had also gotten into the habit to help me with sleeping, um, 
eating these very highly con- THC concentrated brownies before I went to sleep to help me sleep. Yeah, super high THC. They're illegal in New Zealand, but there are places that you can get them that will make that make cannabis CBD oil and all that stuff. They'll so I just think I ordered these brownies and they got to me and they probably got either the dosage wrong or um because yeah I was taking it and I was taking it during the day as well. I would be taking like little crumbs of it. Um and obviously smoking cannabis is very different to ingesting it. So I think that potentially I know I hate to say this because I know cannabis is a wonderful thing to take and it makes you feel so good but I do believe that that played a role in the psychotic episode of course I'm also extremely sensitive and I had a pre-existing let's say mental health condition that just pushed me over the edge so all you guys out there be careful with that stuff it is a very very powerful plant cannabis um as is tobacco. <laughs> I still miss it to this day, but yeah, so it's now September and it's been, yeah, pretty much almost a year since this whole thing happened and I have not touched alcohol, coffee, cigarettes or marijuana since. So yeah, it's an in- quite incredible achievement. And so now what I do is I eat really well. I briefly went through a sugar um uh binging time where i would just eat ice cream and chocolate this was um following my coming back from the mental health ward i just thought yeah i'm going to treat myself and also taking that medication the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor escitalopram was instrumental in me gathering a sweet tooth i believe that as well and that's been put that's been in the scientific literature as well that once you get dosed on these antidepressant medications you seem to have a higher um affinity towards sugary goods so in my mind it was like i'm going to eat chocolate and this is better than smoking drinking weed or coffee so i just wanted to make this disclaimer as well for any of you thinking about quitting um Coffee is the most important one to quit. If you want to quit alcohol or if you want to quit smoking or marijuana, because coffee is tied to all of those addictions, right? So you get drunk at night and you wake up with a hangover. What gets you started in the morning? A coffee, right? Um, what helps you interact with the world once you're stoned after, you know, smoking some weed? a coffee right it gets you back it gets your senses back again um and what makes a cigarette taste better than anything in the world a bitter strong black coffee because that masks the disgusting taste of the cigarette um so it's all connected i used to think cigarettes were connected to everything and that that's what made the coffee taste good and the alcohol and the weed and but nah coffee is the linchpin and unfortunately, it's the one that we feel is the the most harmless, right? Because it's been so normalized, especially in New Zealand. Like Wellington, the city has got more, I think, cafes per capita than any other city in the world. Like New Zealand has taken coffee to the next level. And it's a really, really powerful um, drug. Uh, and for me, it was, yeah, tied, it told, tied all my other um, addictions together. 
So beware of coffee if you want to quit other stuff. You can always go back to it at some point, but yeah, if you're serious about quitting addictions, um, give that a go. So that was my public service announcement about cannabis's connection with psychosis. It's a real thing. Um, anyway, so now winding the clock forward one year, we're back in lockdown again with this Delta variant here in New Zealand. And I have not had any inkling to drink, smoke, or, yeah, drink coffee or any of that. I feel really amazing compared to last lockdown where I was drinking, smoking, and having all that thought, thinking I was doing well, but I was having panic attacks nonstop, right? Um, and the thing is, marijuana masks those panic attacks, as does alcohol, right? You take a shot of whiskey it subsides, but you're not actually confronting the underlying issues that deal with why you are having panic attacks. And that's because I was, yeah, scared. There's a, it's a fucking scary time. There's a pandemic raging through the world. So, but being a hundred percent sober, this is what I say. Um, sobriety is, it's the greatest trip there is, man. Like, I've never really dabbled in psycho, active substances beyond cannabis but i have taken mushrooms in the past and you know you go on a trip with those and i tell you being sober during these times and realizing how people act when they're drunk and when they're yeah under the influence of any drugs you can't not but feel sorry for those people and that they're just basically sleepwalking right um and that's what the, is the greatest trip about this. So I'll just give you my regimen now. So I wake up in the morning whenever I feel like it. I love sleeping, so I love sleeping in. And I get up and I immediately do 20 push-ups. My aim is to do 100 push-ups every day, and I've been pretty much doing that for about six months now. And I have my escitalopram 10 milligram tablet on an empty stomach. I then go shower, do my ablutions, make my breakfast, have my breakfast, and then I'll have um, 50 milligrams of, I'm just reading this, no, 150 milligrams of magnesium every other day. I have, I take this um, fungal supplement called Lion's Mane, which I take whenever I have to write. Um, that helps clear my mind and, yeah, I think it upregulates acetylcholine, which helps you focus. And then I've got, just in case I have trouble sleeping, I'll take 25 milligrams of promethazine, which is an antihistamine that people take for hay fever. Um, histamines, antihistamines work very effectively with me, so it might not work for everyone. The, the clinically, the standard clinical dosage for insomnia is actually 50 milligrams of promethazine, but I only need 25 milligrams and that puts me out. And if in the off chance I get anxiety, pangs, I take half a tablet, one milligram of lorazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, which isn't, which isn't the best medication because it's one of the most highly addictive substances on earth. It's up there with fentanyl, heroin, morphine, but in acute anxiety panic, panic attack situations, which I can gladly say I've not had in the last year. Um, yeah, they work, those medications. 
anyway, but everyone's different, but I just wanted to give you my um, approach to all of this. So yeah, write to me or leave a comment in uh, on the Substack where I'm posting this if you've got any other questions about how I dealt with these things. And for any of you going through clinical, clinical depression right now, hang in there. Um, what is it Winston Churchill said? If you're going through hell, keep going. There is a way out. And yeah, please feel free to either write to me at chrisvonroy at gmail.com directly or leave a comment and I'll get back to you and I'll help you. Another thing that I changed is that I now have an online psychologist that I talk to every two weeks. And she is absolutely amazing. I We talk through Zoom. And because I live remotely, there aren't actually very many counselors in this region. And the ones that do exist, um, they are few and far between, but they are also booked out for months in advance. So check out online counselors. And the great thing about that is that they're not, um, you're not uh, restricted to geographic areas right so you can have a counselor that lives anywhere in india in massachusetts in iceland um, it's all about clicking so you might have to shop around for counselors that's why most of these online counselors give their first sessions for free and you'll find they're very very reasonable in their pricing and yeah they let you also pay most of them will let you pay as you go and if you fall short financially, they will help you out because that's what their prerogative is to get you healthy again. So yeah, medication and talking to someone has helped me immensely. And yeah, I'm kind of embarking on a new way of being at the moment, which is very interesting. And yeah, I'm going to write about this a little bit more, especially going into a bit more detail about how the psychosis happened. Um, because I do have a theory as well. Like I believe it's hard talking about this stuff and yeah, I can understand if it's too much for you people, but you've got Jonathan's excerpt coming up very shortly. Um, so I'm just going to get through this quickly. I believe psychosis is actually what happens to a human when they try to commit suicide, but something inside them is not allowing them to commit suicide. And so the brain reacts by putting the, putting itself through psychosis to snap themselves out of that behavior. It's a survival mechanism. Um, this is my theory. It's for people that have survived suicide who just don't know where to go. And then the psychosis happens. So that could be something which is worth pursuing. It is obviously super hard to study and there's ethical concerns, but any of you people dealing with someone who you suspect could be going through psychosis, um, I mean, yeah, it's pretty easy to spot, but there are ways out of it. And yeah, putting these people into secure environments is obviously the top priority. You won't be able to help them yourself. They need professional care and medication. So yeah, that's my story for so far. Yeah. So if you have any questions about it, I'm like obviously super open about these things. And I think for some of you that know me, this could come as a shock for others. It could be that you guys are going, Oh yeah, was, we was waiting until that was going to happen. So anyway, I'm smiling about that. So I wanted to 
end the podcast on a high note, and that is that uh, one of my oldest friends in the world, Jonathan, who I've known since I was, I think, about, we were about eight years old when we met in Munich at the International School in Munich. We were in the same class, and... um we used to hang out on weekends together and go on missions like Indiana Jones style fact finding missions in the Englischer Garden, which was this little green belt in the city of Munich where his parents lived. And yeah, I fondly remember those things. And I really want to have John on this podcast, which hopefully, and this is kind of like me begging John to join. Um, he he's highly sought after seeing that his book Owls of the Eastern Ice won um several awards including being nominated for the National Book Award in America shortlisted for that and it made the top 10 best books of 2020 of the Times in the UK newspaper which is absolutely incredible and he's been on a lot of podcasts so far so far so I understand if he's a bit podcasted out but yeah, so this is, it's the quest to find and save the world's largest owl, right? Um, and I just want to read some testimonials here. So Dev, Dave Goulson said, a gripping account of Slat's obsessive quest to save one of the world's most magnificent birds. Uh, Isabella Tree said, remarkable, if only every endangered species had a guardian angel as impassioned and courageous and pragmatic as Jonathan Slat. Um Sophie Roberts wrote, Slat's story makes the people, wildlife, and landscapes of the Russian Far East come alive. Truly epic. Charles Foster, author of Being a Beast. So it's incredible. Um, I'll just read a little bit of this. Breathy, low, and organic, the fish owls call pulse through the forest, hiding among the creaking trees and bending with the rushing river. It was the sound of something ancient and in its place. So I'll just give a bit of a backstory. So John is basically doing his PhD at this point in time, and he's gone to the Primorye, which is this area in Russia that's just um, hasn't really been touched by civilization, which is, and it's one of the few habitats on Earth where there are fish owls, and this is the world's largest species of owl. So you'd think they'd be quite easy to find, but. Um, here, so in the book it goes, Primorye, a remote forested region near to where Russia, China, and North Korea meet in a tangle of barbed wire is the only place where brown bears, tigers, and leopards coexist. It is also home to one of nature's rarest birds, the Blackiston fish owl. A chance encounter with this huge, strange bird was to change wildlife researcher Jonathan C. Slat's life beyond measure. Okay, so I wanted to read a bit um, from chapter 2 called The First Search, and it's basically after he's already landed in this remote village after a storm, and yeah, in this village called, I can't remember what it's called, hold on, it's got a name, um, Agzu, in Russia, Agzu in Russian means hell, so the first chapter is called A Village Named Hell, and it describes him entering the village and going there, this is right before he goes out and on search for this fish owl. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, so this is from the second chapter called The First Search. Here we go. 
I spent the first few hours wandering the river bottom with Tolia, observing, as he indicated, good trees to inspect and promising patches of water to scrutinize. He moved deliberately. I had noticed that Sergei, who had made decisions in an instant and acted on them unwaveringly, chided Tolia for this perceived indolence. Indolence. But Tolia's unhurried approach made him a good teacher and a pleasant companion. I also learned that Tolia often worked for Surmach to document the natural histories of Primorje's birds. We stopped to brew tea in the early afternoon. Tolia made a fire, then boiled some river water, and we crunched on our hard candies and sipped tea a while. Eurasian nuthatches churred inquisitively in the trees above. After lunch, Tolia suggested I lead, using my instincts and what I had learnt that morning while he observed. One stretch of water I thought we should explore we should explore, Talia dismissed as too deep for the owls to fish, and another was too overgrown with willows after the enormous birds to realistically approach on the wing. After I fell through the ice on a slow backwater, albeit only to my knees, my rubber hip waders keeping me dry, I learned the value of Talia's ice pole, a stick tipped with a metal spike that he used to test the integrity of the ice before walking on it. We followed the stream until the valley narrowed to a sharp V, and the water disappeared under the snow and ice and rock. We found no fish owl sign that day, and at dusk we lingered to see if any owls might call, but the woods were as silent as the snow along the river was undisturbed. I took my cues from Tolia on how to react to the days of lack day's lack of tangible result. He explained that even if fish owls inhabited the very patch of forest we stood in, it might take a week of searching and listening to actually detect them. This was disappointing news. It was one thing to sit comfortably in the Sormak's office in Vladivostok and talk about finding fish owls, the reality of the process. The cold and the darkness and the silence was another thing entirely. It was well after dark, perhaps nine o'clock, when we returned to Agzu. The uneven window light on the snow outside our cabin, cabin alerted us that Aviaduk and Shurik had, always, had already returned. They had made soup using some potatoes and moose meat gifted by a neighbor and had been joined by a skinny Russian hunter in an oversized parka who introduced himself as Lisha. He appeared to be f- around 40 years old, his thick glasses distorted his eyes, but not enough to mask his, consider- his considerable intoxication. I had to take a glass of water there. I have been, I have been drinking for ten or twelve days, Lesha announced matter-of-factly, without rising from the kitchen table. As I exchanged impressions of the day with Sergei, Shurik ladled soup and Tolia emerged from the foyer with a bottle of vodka, which he placed ceremoniously at the center of the kitchen table, along with some cups. Sergei glowered. Russian social customs typically dictate that once a bottle of vodka is on the table for guests, it is not removed until empty. Some vodka distillers don't even put caps on their bottles, opting for a thin layer of aluminium to puncture instead, because what do you need a cap for? Either a bottle is full or it is empty, with only a short period between those two states. On a night that Sergei and Shurik were hoping for respite from drink, Tolia had just committed them to a bottle of vodka. There were five of us, but Tolia had put only four cups on the table. I looked at him quizzically. I don't drink, Tolia replied to my silent question. 
This made him exempt from the suffering associated with yet another night of heavy drinking, and I found that this was a habit of his, to offer vodka on our behalf to guests without consulting the group and often at inopportune times. We talked about the rivers over soup and shots. Sergei explained that the Samarga River was not particularly deep, but the current commanded respect. Someone unlucky enough to go through the ice might not have the time to claw himself free. The flow threatened to suck him under and away toward a quick, cold, and disorienting death. Lisha added that this had already happened once that winter. The tracks of a missing villager had been found leading to a small, dark gash in the ice that revealed the rushing Samarga. Human skeletons were occasionally discovered downstream by the river mouth. Samarga's victims from years past tangled and askew among logs, rocks, and sands. I saw that Lesha was eyeing me. Where do you live? he asked, slurring. Terne, I answered. Are you from there? No, I am from New York, I answered. It was easier than explaining Minnesota and the Midwest to people with likely no comprehension of North American geography. New York, Lesha repeated, New York, then lit a cigarette and glanced at Sergei. It was, a, it was as though an important realization were trying to penetrate the thick cloud of uninterrupted alcohol consum consumption. Why do you live in New York? Because I am an American. An American? Lesha's eyes bulged and he looked at Sergei again. He's an American. Sergei nodded. Lesha repeated the words several times while staring at me incredulously. He had apparently never met a foreigner and certainly hadn't expected one to speak fluent Russian. To be sitting at a table with a Cold War foe in his hometown of Agsu was not something easily reconciled. We were distracted by a noise outside, and a small group of men entered. I recognized many of them from the night before. I wanted to be fresh in the morning, so I took that as my cue to disappear into the back room. While Talia ducked out to play chess with Ampleyev, a local Russian retiree who occupied a house across the street. I recorded some notes from the day by headlamp, then got into my sleeping bag, once again wincing at the pile of meat and fur, red, glistening, and neglected in the corner, like the river ice we depended on. It was softening. Okay, so there, that's um, Jonathan Slat's Owls of... The Eastern Eyes. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. I hope it wasn't too much out there, but I thought maybe for my first proper podcast, I should be honest and leave it all out on the table. Um, yeah. So I think I'm going to keep this up reading chapters from books. They're not all necessarily going to be written by really good friends of mine, but... I think every podcast I'm going to take a book that I've been reading and read an excerpt. Um, and yeah, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. So I have lined up a couple of very interesting um, podcast guests in the next weeks. Uh, two of them are from MIT's Media Lab. Um, one works in acoustics and the other one works in artificial intelligence. And I wanted to keep the topics broad but also yeah kind of focusing on the future um climate change artificial intelligence um yeah civilization uh anything and everything that affects our lives and i guess i might get a historian on here or there but um we'll see 
So now I've been talking for nearly an hour straight without notes. Um, I've obviously left stuff out. And obviously, if there's questions about any of this, I'm very, very open about what happened to me last year. And um, it's not for everyone's psychosis, but I'm glad I went through it because I feel like I have a new lease on my life having quit all these um yeah addictions that have bothered me over the years so but as friedrich nietzsche said in order to regain true redemption you must turn every it was and i want into every it was and i wanted it thus right so everything happens for a reason um and i wanted to leave you with another two of my favorite quotes one by immanuel kant and the other one by William Shakespeare. See if you can guess which is which and leave it in the comments below. Um, the one quote was, Doubts are traitors in our mind that make us lose the good we oft may win by fearing to attempt. And the other one is, Act as if the maxims of your actions would by your very own will become a universal law of nature. See if you know which one is which. I think it's pretty obvious. And finally, since enlightenment is all that we're seeking here on the Word and in life in general, I wanted to leave you with a great line about enlightenment. And that is that enlightenment is the ability to come to terms with your own contradictions, right? It's the ability to live with one's own contradictions. And that's all that enlightenment is. September 2021, thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to The Word, and I'll, yeah, hopefully see you guys all in about two weeks. See you, hear you, and please leave some comments, and it's glad I'm glad to have you on the show, listening to the show, thinking, and be kind to each other. And let's go out on something lovely that you guys have all obviously been in touch with yourselves. And that is the great Robin Williams. See if you can name the film. Leave it in the comments below. Share the shit out of this podcast. Love you all. Aruha nui. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Thank you guys. <laughs>